morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. And <clears throat> I am particularly delighted that Kendall Hoyt is our speaker today. She has a fascinating background and amazing interest. And at the end of the talk, I suppose that some of us should ask her, how does she sleep at night? Being the person who worries for us about everything about biosecurity and epidemic preparedness and the development of vaccines to help us if there's new outbreaks. And I don't know about you, but I took a look at her book, Long Shot, and it does make you wonder about where we're headed and what we're doing to be ready for the future. We live in a perilous time. And thank you, Kendall, for being someone who thinks about this and helps us all to get ready. Let me tell you a little bit of her background. She has a bachelor's from Duke, and it was in English with a certificate in neuroscience. And she went on to get her PhD at MIT, and that was in the history and social study of science and technology. I'm just going to give you a little highlight of some of the experiences that Kendall has had in her career, both academically and professionally, that prepare her to be the person to tell us about her topic today. So she, after leaving uh, her PhD, she was a research associate and fellow at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, where she worked in both the international security program and was in the executive session for domestic preparedness. She had, just prior to that, been a research fellow at the Center for Management of Innovation and Technology at the National University of Singapore. Other experiences included that she uh, was a research associate here at the New England Center for Emergency Preparedness at Dartmouth. She was a National Cybersecurity Fellow of New America. She was a visiting research fellow at the Center for Global Health Policy at the University of Sussex. She most recently spent time again at the Harvard Kennedy School where she was a fellow in the Global Health Institute and the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. She is an assistant professor of medicine in our division, and she also lectures at the Thayer School of Engineering here at Dartmouth. A delight for our residents, she has been talking with Hillary about spending time with our training program and working with the residents on the topics that uh, you're going to hear about. And in addition to that, she teaches at the Geisel School also in um, um, curricular activities. Just a few of the most recent professional positions, because I could go on for a long time, but she was a lead, con she served in 2017-18 as the lead consultant for response strategy, the Coalition of Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. She's been a consultant, the medical countermeasure strategy for global catastrophic biological risks, the nuclear threat initiative, and up through last year, the chair of the health security innovation project at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School. Kendall is extremely prepared to tell us about what we need to think about in preparedness and in vaccine development and in the world of biological security. So Kendall, please come and talk to us about it. And I, she can't recommend this to you, but I can. Her book, Long Shot, Vaccines for National Defense, um, if you want a good read on this topic after hearing from Kendall. Um, yes. 
Kendall, did they show you how to do this? Because, yeah, we okay. can work on this. Rich, thank right. you so much. Thank that you. was a very <laughs> thorough introduction. More information than you probably all needed. All right, so there is a way to do this. Um, okay. And then I think there are people remotely, but maybe I should. Does anyone know how to make it? Okay, great. Thank you. All right, so today, first of all, there's nothing quite like kicking off your morning with a little Ebola. So thank you all for taking that on. Um, so today I'm gonna to talk about developing vaccines for epidemics, um, which is uniquely hard. It's hard scientifically, um, logistically, and economically. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what we learned about how to do that from Ebola, um, how we're applying some of those lessons, and some remaining challenges that we have there. So outbreaks of emerging infectious disease, of unfamiliar pathogens, um, can emerge really rapidly and without warning. And this is challenging because vaccines can take up to 10 years to make. Um, and as you can see, I mean, they're happening quite frequently. Um, you know, things like Zika, SARS, MERS. Um, most recently, I'm sure some of you have seen these reports coming out of China, a new uh, potential coronavirus causing a cluster of pneumonia. Um, so we're gonna have a new one on the chart um, fairly soon. And this is becoming more likely due to, you know, population density, growing mobility, um, ecological change. All of these are creating more and more opportunities for these viruses to emerge and travel. Um, now, the predictability and scale of some of these outbreaks undermines the business case for developing vaccines against these diseases. So if you're industry, I mean, you're not gonna develop a vaccine for a disease that you cannot predict. I mean, it's fairly simple. So not surprisingly, the pipeline is not very strong for a lot of these diseases. As you can see, many of these are not very far past phase one. Um, so this is an issue. So if we want to have vaccines in our arsenal in order to be able to prevent the next outbreak from becoming a humanitarian disaster, we need to find new ways to invest. Now, not to say that vaccines are the only way to respond to these kinds of outbreaks, but they're nice to have. You want to have that tool in your arsenal. Um, so the 2014-15 West African Ebola outbreak was a real eye-opener. And what that really showed us is that it is, in fact, possible to embed research in an outbreak response to develop vaccines in real time. 
Um, and the severity of that outbreak mobilized industry, academia, and government in a way that we had not seen since World War II, since a lot of the things that I talked about in that book, Longshot, that Rich showed you. This was really, you know, the first time we saw anything like that. Um, and the, within one year, we saw vaccine trials go from zero to 20 in five different countries. Um, and candidates got into trial with unprecedented speed. Um, the, but even so, a lot of them um, did not even get started until here. So they missed a very critical window here. A lot of them lost nine to 12 months obtaining safety data before they could really go out into the field. And this was a very, very critical lesson that we took forward with us. Um, one vaccine, the um, Merck Ebola vaccine, did in fact, they started, they initiated ring trials uh, right about here, and they were able to capture these remaining cases. Um, and they were able to obtain enough preliminary data from that um, to be able to be used under compassionate use for the remainder of this outbreak and beginning of the next in the DRC. Um, and the way these worked, they had, they would identify a confirmed case and then they would vaccinate all of the contacts of that case. There's actually a double ring. Then they would vaccinate the contacts of the contacts of that case. And they had about 90 rings um, from here to here. And then they um, split them. Rent, randomly split the two, and um, with a 21-day delay. And because there's an incubation period of about 10 days, they were able to distinguish, you know, what the difference in the efficacy rate, which they determined at that point was close to 97.5%. Uh, um, and that vaccine has since been licensed. Um, achieved approval both in the EU and the U.S. in December. Uh, this very this past December, which was a huge advance, um, we learned a lot on the therapeutic side too. This was a timeline that um, Trudy Lang put together from Oxford from a drug that they were testing in the outbreak. And as you can see, some things went really quickly. So. Grant was awarded in one week, which was able to kickstart, you know, a whole chain of events. And that was really unprecedented. But other things took longer than they should have. So, you know, deciding on a protocol took, you know, a month plus. Contracting took over two months. And that really was a rate-limiting step for another, you know, series of important events that needed to happen. And so there was unnecessary administrative delay. That was another really important lesson that we took forward. Um, so these experiences informed the formation of CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. And what that is, it's a multi-stakeholder organization, um, international, based in Norway, London, and, the, and uh, they have an office in D.C. as well. 
Um, and it was Norway, India, the Gates Foundation, Wellcome Trust, and the World Economic Forum came together to form this. And the basic idea is to fund and coordinate the development of vaccines for the market and fail. I became involved in this initiative way back in 2015 and co-wrote the business plan for this with a small group in Norway. Um, we got it approved and we're able to collectively with the help of all of these people um, close to six, oh, over $600 million um, and then launched it. And once we launched it, I led the response plan where we crafted our initial strategy. Um, and just to give you a sense of how we think about it and how it works, um, we really redefined the problem for what we're trying to do, um, which is speed. So it's not just innovation of new vaccines, but how quickly can you do it? So you can capture that testing window the next time around. Um, and we do it in three ways. Our first strategy is what we call um, our just-in-case strategy, which is pipeline development, very traditional pipeline development. So if you get something up to phase 2B, then you're ready. You have something to roll out the next time there's an outbreak to test. And we did this for three, initially for three priority pathogens, and we identified them with help from the WHO has an R&D blueprint where they list all the priority pathogens with pandemic potential. And then we overlaid that list with another assessment on the technological feasibility of vaccine development for those pathogens. And the top three that rose out of that assessment were Lhasa, Nipah, and MERS. Um, and we've since added Rift Valley fever and chikungunya. So now we're funding the development, pipeline development for five. Um, the second way we try to accelerate the timeline, we have our just, what we call our just-in-case strategy. Um, and these are slightly more agnostic platforms, um, investing in technological developments and research tools that will accelerate the development, early stage development of vaccines, the evaluation, clinical evaluation of vaccines, and the manufacturing. So anything you can do at any point along the line to compress the timeline that it takes so that it doesn't, you know, potentially you could develop a vaccine in a year, not 10. That really transforms your ability to respond outbreaks. Um, and the third way we're investing is in institutional platforms. And this is really drawing on that lesson of administrative delay. So what can we do in advance to negotiate protocols, regulatory pathways, import export licenses, contracts, whatever it is, um, so that you're not spinning your wheels when there's an outbreak. So, you know, in each, which is hard to do because, you know, each outbreak is very specific to a pathogen and a place. Um, but we can, based on the pathogens we chose, identify likely hotspots, sit down with the relevant regulators and health ministers, and negotiate 80% 
of what we think it is we're going to need so that when there is an outbreak, we sit down and then we're just tweaking the remaining 20%. Um, all of these things will save a tremendous amount of time. Um, the other thing that CEPI is doing is we're creating the institutional momentum and framework to develop vaccines as a public good, not as a commodity. And we're doing this through contracts. Now, contracts are super boring, but they are a lever for social change. That is your opportunity to strike a new deal. In exchange for CEPI money, we agree to these terms. So you know, the basic tenant here is one of equitable access. So you know, regardless of your ability to pay, you will have access to these stockpiles. And that is built into every agreement. Um, we do it through price and volume commitments, ensuring cost transparency and fair pricing. Um, we've created um, certain IP agreements that allow for step-in rights. So, you know, a developer may, for any particular reason, uh, not be able to fulfill their obligation or refuse to. CEPI, CEPI has the right to go in, take that IP, and give it to somebody else. So the project does not die with that one contract and that one developer. That's actually a lesson that we've learned through a lot of um, DOD contracts over the time. Um, and principles of open access. So in exchange for CEPI money, you agree to make your data, your samples, and your publications open access. Um, and the final thing that we're doing which is really quite new, is this concept of shared risk and reward, shared benefits. So in, it's not likely, but in the rare event that one of the CEPI-sponsored vaccines should become profitable, it's not going to be the classic situation where CEPI assumes all of the risk and the developer assumes all of the benefit. There's going to be a share. They're going to get some of that return. And that rebalancing is really critical to being able, creating some public initiatives that are more sustainable over time. Um, so all of that is very exciting and a huge advance, completely different. But there are a number of remaining challenges um, to what we're trying to accomplish here. The first one is, we need to build better public-private partnerships. So increasingly, we are seeing public-private partnerships develop um, drugs and vaccines in areas where the government and industry have been stepping away from it. So you'll see CEPI, Emerging Infectious Disease Vaccines, or Carbex for um, developing new antibiotics or DNDI for developing <laughs> neglected diseases. So if, if PPPs are gonna be the answer, then we need to figure out how to make them work better. And they, they are uniquely hard. Uh, they are multi-stakeholder organizations that are based on you know, donations often from governments or philanthropic organizations that are trying to build products. Um, and they're doing products that are not profitable. This is a completely different area. 
Um, and one of the things that places like Gates, WHO, all the way down to these PPPs have been doing, hiring companies like McKinsey. Now, full disclosure, I used to work at McKinsey, which is not something you want to freely admit these days, as you know, Mayor Pete will tell you. But, and that what they're doing is they have the wrong model. They have a private sector model for a public sector problem. We are not trying to maximize profit. We are trying to maximize social benefit. And, you know, we have different decision processes, a different set of stakeholders, a different governance problem, different IP problems. When you think about the R&D portfolio, you want to balance risk in a different way. You're looking for a different outcome. Um, and so all of these questions are sort of a science unto themselves. And we need a new set of answers and a new set of best practices that apply to these organizations and these problems. And that is in its infancy. So there's a lot of work to be done there. The second thing we need is a post-phase two plan. So funding for CEPI ends at phase two, at the end of, once you've completed your contract for phase two B, you're done. Uh, so what happens after that? Now, I think it's really important here to take the right lesson away from Ebola. Um, people have, um, even now, I think a little bit of a, if you build it, they will come mentality. And, you know, Merck stepped up to the plate and they developed that vaccine and it was wonderful and that'll happen again. I think that's exactly the wrong lesson. Um, I think because Merck did that is why they will never do that again. Because now they know the exact cost of what they did. They know the direct cost and they know the opportunity cost. And it was extremely disruptive. Um, and this is not speculation on my part. I've been in enough closed door meetings where I've heard exactly this. So what happens the next time there's an outbreak and we do have a candidate that's ready for phase three testing? Who's gonna sponsor that? Who's gonna manufacture it? How's it gonna happen? So if your industry, you have to put yourself in industry's shoes. They're not evil. They, they are reimbursed on a unit price times volume sold. So bearing that in mind, let's think about the three scenarios that are likely in an outbreak. Number one, you have a vaccine that is highly effective. It quells the outbreak. That's a win for society, but it's a loss for the company because they just killed their own market. Uh, you have a disease that spirals out of control. Demand goes way up, but now you've got governments freaking out and they are gonna demand cost reductions and our compulsory licensing. Also not great for you. Third scenario, the outbreak ends abruptly as we saw with SARS and whatnot, that can absolutely happen. Then you've got doses that are just sitting in a stockpile. So no matter how you cut it, the business case is weak. And you're gonna have, even if you wanted to do it, you would have a hard time convincing the higher ups that this is what you're gonna do. In fact, um, the CEO of Merck was recently quoted as saying, you know, we, we, we care about these things, we're a very compassionate company, but capital markets don't go to church on Sunday. 
So, I mean, that is the mentality that you're working against, you know, they, and that is their job. Um, so what we need is a new incentive that delinks units sold from reimbursement from award and like a prize. Um, and that is actually something that I'm working on right now with a brilliant economist here at Dartmouth, Chris Snyder. Some of you may know him. Does a lot of work on vaccines and a former colleague of mine at CEPI. And we have a unique data industry data set where we are coming up with what is that number. And once we have that number, then we can have a very concrete conversation. It'll kick off a broader conversation with all of the relevant stakeholders about, okay, so then how are we gonna administer that? What does that look like? Um, and I think that is essential because without this, CEPI and a lot of these other um, public-private partnerships that stop at phase 2B run the risk of becoming a highway to nowhere. So we want to make these public investments count. Okay, the third thing is community engagement. Now this is the DRC outbreak. Um, and what this has demonstrated is that access to an effective vaccine is not enough. So we had access to the Merck vaccine, which we know is highly effective right from the beginning. Right here, we were using it. And yet these numbers continue to go up. And it's not because the vaccine is ineffective. So I, I checked the WHO dashboard um, and as of Wednesday, the number, the numbers keep going up. It was uh, 3,392 infected and 2,234 deaths with a remaining 568 cases that are still under investigation. Um, so the message here is really about community engagement. So if you cannot effectively engage the community and give them access to this vaccine, allow them to accept and trust the vaccine, it's not nearly as effective as it could be or should be. So why, what's happening here specifically? So if the West African outbreak was difficult, the DRC outbreak is impossible. Um, they, a couple of Ebola treatment centers were firebombed. Uh, this was in February, last February. Um, and the result of which was that MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, pulled out um, and the WHO was no longer able to maintain neutrality. They had to request security support from the Gong Congolese government. Um, and so what you see here are, these are Congolese soldiers protecting healthcare workers. They're actually marching here because a epidemiologist from Cameroon had been shot in April. Um, but these guys, these very same guys are now sitting with guns outside of Ebola treatment units. And these are the exact same guys that the rebels have been fighting. The local militia and rebels have been fighting for the last 20 years. So that is a huge disincentive uh, for anyone to step into an Ebola treatment unit. Um, 
It sows distrust. You have people hiding the sick. They're worried that they're going to take them away. Um, just to, you know, that is the scenario. Um, there's a really interesting study that was done in The Lancet 2019 uh, where they surveyed a, a northern um, province to try to understand, you know, what, what are people thinking? You know, what are their belief systems? What is driving some of the behavior here? And fully one quarter did not believe that the virus was real. Nearly half suspected foul play. Um, and most don't believe that institutions or local authorities had their best interest at heart. Um, so what this is a, is a really stark illustration of something that we've known, but now we're really seeing it play out, which is that trust in government and institutions is highly associated with um, vaccine hesitancy and or health-seeking behavior. Um, and that is clearly at play here. And the way it, it gets translated in this particular context, for ring vaccination, you need to identify, you need to do contact tracing. You need people to talk to you and to trust you and to answer the question. But um, in this scenario, they have been able, unable to uh, form rings and identify contacts for up to 80% of the confirmed cases. Um, now, the, that number is extremely high for this one particular place. The WHO is saying that number is closer to 18% in the DRC, but that's still too high. Um, and this gives you a sense of what's driving that. Uh, so fear, violence, misinformation, distrust, these are barriers, um, but they're not the only barriers. Um, also, we have poor infrastructure, weak supply chains, uh, untrained healthcare workers. All of these factors collectively are what we call the last mile barrier in global health. Um, this, these are Ebola responders uh, in the rainy season in the DRC. For those of you who live on dirt roads, it's not an entirely unfamiliar <laughs> scenario. Um, the Independent recently did an amazing photo series on um, uh, vaccination in hard to reach places. This is a community relay in the DRC doing a UNICEF, a childhood vaccine delivery. Um, this is another one in Mali where um, there's been a partial ban on motorcycles due to violence in the region. Uh, just to give you a sense of what the last mile can look like. And community engagement is really, really essential in these areas to build trust and improve communication and access. Um, so depending on how you define the last mile, we, we face these barriers in Northern California. You know, where it's a belief system that drives anti-vaccination sentiment. And that's, and we face them in Liberia. So these, how you define it is very, very specific to a place. And it often requires a very creative solution. 
that is tailored to that specific situation. Um, this is one of my favorite examples. So I was at the um, CEPI scientific meeting in Paris in 2017, and this woman kicked it off. She walked down to the front, and, you know, and most of the guys in the room looked like this. <laughs> and they'd never seen anything quite like that. And she did not put up a PowerPoint presentation. She broke out into song. And this is Queen Julie N.D. She is a Liberian pop star. And when Ebola broke out, she wrote a song with very catchy lyrics like, don't play with monkeys and baboons. Don't eat bush meat. This is Ebola. This is what it does. This is how you protect yourself from it. And the song went viral. And the song, you know, went places that an informational flyer never could have gotten or would never have had the same impact. She crossed the last mile. That's what a creative solution looks like. Um, and she was by far and away the highlight of that meeting. Um, so just to recap, you know, key lessons from Ebola. We can and we should embed research in outbreak response. And CEPI is making progress towards that in close coordination with the WHO, which has outbreak response plans for a number of different scenarios. And they're actually standing up a new, um, they call the global coordination mechanism. Um, and that is a way to, the next time there's a big outbreak, bring to the table key developers, local regulators, health ministers, so that it's not this unorchestrated land grab that we saw in 2014 and 15 in West Africa. We can, you know, prioritize candidates, we can identify places, we can task teams. This is a huge advance. Um, second, we can build a pipeline for epidemic vaccine candidates. And again, CEPI's making great progress here. 26 contracts, and they have uh, dedicated 456 million to date towards these contracts. Uh, redefining the problem speed. So once you start thinking about it, as a timeline, you start to invest differently. We're investing in these platform technologies in a sustained and long-term way. This is the, that's very exciting. This is the first place where we've been able to do that. Um, there's been talk about doing it in places like BARDA, but not in a sustained and deliberate fashion like this, a patient fashion, because it's a long-term high-risk investment. Um, and we invest in uh, some of these institutional platforms that will reduce administrative delay. Uh, places where we have more work to do. So building the institutions and incentives that we need so we can start to develop vaccines as a public good. We have a lot of work to do here still. Um, things like creating a prize or a pull fund for phase three and beyond. And then finally, engaging local communities to overcome the last mile barrier. So it's not enough to have a vaccine, as we've seen in the DRC. People have to be able to access it, and they have to be able to accept it. 
Um, and we need to find creative ways to engage communities to do that. So, <laughs> Maybe I'll start it off by telling you the other day I came across in, as I was tearing my jammas and trying to get rid of some of the journals, an editorial that said, why should rich Western countries care about the Ebola outbreak and vaccine development? And maybe you would tackle that. Why should wealthy Western countries take this on? Why, why do they want to do that? Um, well, you know, my mind goes to the, it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, but is there any such thing as altruism? I mean, I think that all of these, all of the um, WHO priority, or at least the top three that we picked, top five, maybe the exception of chikungunya, have the um, potential to be, go person to person. So yes, they affect low and middle income countries, but they, as we've seen, you know, outbreaks can't, these all have pandemic potential by definition. Um, so if you're not altruistic, you can always rely on that. <laughs> yeah. And it basically alluded to that, but, but yeah. it does mean that we need to pay attention to this, even yeah. though this is occurring thousands of miles in, in, in other countries, yeah. it has the potential to be pandemic and can easily in this day and age where transportation is so easy, it can definitely arrive ever, anywhere. Right. Um, and, and preparedness is key. I just think it's such an important issue. If I can build on it a moment, CDC's somewhat silly kind of motto, disease anywhere is disease everywhere, has been motivating for some if you're not motivated by altruism. But I think the, the, the premise of the global health security agenda is that it's also destabilizing to have epidemics internationally. So this region is highly destabilized, which has lots of implications for um, stable government and, and averting another failed state in the region. And so, so that's not a motivation, even if you don't care about disease and the fact that somebody could get on a plane and arrive at Dallas with Ebola yeah. elsewhere. I think a recent study on the um, direct and indirect cost of the, most, of the Ebola outbreak had it at $56 billion. So just to give a sense of the scale. Monto and SARS. Right. Right. I think you first. Okay, Tom. Um, isn't, you know, listening to the Merck conundrum, you think, um, why wouldn't governments uh, subsidize private companies to incentivize them to do the right thing and, uh, you know, make it a win-win rather than uh, have it be an issue where if they, if they stuck their neck out and appropriately they definitely lost out financially. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really interesting approach. We used to do versions of that for military vaccines, um, have like a special government services division to the National Drug Company, which is now part of Sanofi. And that, that actually did work. Um, we, um, we were in negotiations with... Um, GlaxoSmithKline to do something like that again, and it came down to price. 
um, the negotiations fell through. It's, it's an idea that we've revisited over and over again. Um, but I think, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has an expectation of a 32% margin. And that's unreasonable in the public health space. And so is that even the most efficient way to spend money in this? So maybe, you know, a lot of people are coming around to the idea, it might make more sense to just have not connect it to private industry, but to build your own, have it be in the public interest. Well, like we used to have for penicillin. We used to, you know, that was not, that's not on patent. That was, you know, we had government labs producing it in the public interest. That was basically the same question I had. Yeah. It just seems that trying to make a for-profit system work in this space yes. just doesn't work. Totally agree. And it doesn't work in healthcare in general, you know. So why should it work in vaccines, which yeah. are likely to be um, profit, you know, empty? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, it just seems to me that the government, you know, has to step in even, even uh, for its own best interest. Right. Right. And it, or is it a is it a multi-government um, initiative is another question. We're starting to see this, this debate is a little bit more advanced in the antimicrobial space. So there are more and more discussions, especially in the UK, of creating a public entity to develop and to manufacture new vaccines and then to hold them in reserve, you know, because they have market failures too. You know, why would you spend all this money to develop a new antibiotic if you are then just going to put it behind lock and key for a rainy day? So they, they're, they're talking very seriously about creating a public entity for this. James and then Don, and then back. Uh, <clears throat> great talk. Um, if you comment a little further more about the development of trust and problem reason relationships out there, like the final mile there that involved the mistrust of government in the Congo and mistrust of government in our California, and what sort of efforts are actually feasible to address yeah, I mean, there's no one answer to that. As I said, I mean, the the specific issues are different in each region and for each issue. Um, you know, the most commonsensical thing that I had read, you know, in terms of building trust um, is to be trustworthy. <laughs> They're actually a really good start, you know. So to deliver quality health care, to do what you say you're going to do, to be transparent um, is actually one of the most effective things you can do in any particular healthcare care setting. Um, and sometimes it's all you can do. But um, in terms of addressing the issues of that specific local population, one of the things that WHO is doing now is they are embedding anthropologists an outbreak response. So, you know, you have a new outbreak, there is an anthropologist on the team who identifies local community leaders, meets with them, and primarily just listens, tries to figure out what are the specific sticky wickets here and address them as best they can. John? Yeah, my question is a related one. It has to do not just with the final mile, but I say the final thousand miles. That is, I'm working with global health with ministries of health. Um, we're getting across the border. How do you engage the 
ministries of health um, as partners during a time when there's a lot of global conflict and perhaps mistrust yeah. of Western government. Um, you do it before the time. That's the key. This is part of the these institutional platforms is sitting, you know, having meetings well in advance of an outbreak. And and you know, constructive meetings where you're not just talking about what if, but you're sitting down and you're aiding, you're uh, hammering out a negotiation, you know, sort of an MOU, you know, here's the first 80% of what we agreed to do if and when there is an outbreak here. Um, because doing it in real time is highly fraught. Uh, but it's nice to have those relationships and build those trusts before there's an actual event. Follow that. Yeah. Certainly in West Africa, as your Ministry of Health has flooded as not only trust issues, they're pulled in a million directions and mm -hmm. rendered ineffective by, mm -hmm. by a lot of the influx of people who are suddenly looking to build these relationships and mm -hmm. create these structures. So, so there's that too. Mm -hmm. My very specific question, not so much theoretical, is understanding the science and, and the realities of the J and J Janssen vaccine So the Merck vaccine was for ages six years and up. I think you can do younger children with the J&J &J vaccine. Um, also, you want redundancy. Um, you know, there could be a manufacturing problem. You know, to have just one vaccine with just one manufacturing problem, then you're without an Ebola vaccine. You want more than one. It is a two-shot series, which is not ideal. Um, it's somehow undermining yeah, I heard that, but it didn't feel very substantial. Um, yeah. Yes. So in the United States, we have problems with people choosing not to vaccinate and creating all kinds of clusters. And so, what about what's happening in other countries where? I understand there's a lot of resistance and they, people don't want to talk to you and so forth. But are are uh, people who should be vaccinated once they're identified? Are there countries and um, organizations? And what are they doing to force people to comply, if at all? Or can they just opt out? Are you talking in general? Yeah. Uh, when there's an epidemic in like, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm at tremendous risk. I ought to have this vaccine. I say, no, I don't think I will. Yeah. Back over and over. Well, I mean, different countries have different approaches, but one thing to bear in mind is, you know, we hear a lot about anti-vaccination in the U.S. because of these particular pockets. We hear a lot about it, you know, in the DRC because of what's happening there. But the truth is that is not the norm. They did a global survey. It's like people have the confidence rate in vaccines worldwide is 97. Most people consider it a privilege to be able to get a vaccine. 
So we're really talking about things on the um, so it's, I don't think it is a wide, as wide of a spread problem as we've been led to believe. We really look at the broader context. An observation. I, I was struck by the similarity between the pictures that you showed of trying to get vaccine out in the world and some of the pictures that I've seen of trying to get library books out in the world on Ponyback or Mule Team or historically, but also currently, I think in South America there are places where the local library is a farmer's home and people have that spot to. And whether it's music or sports or library books, maybe there's a link there that if those links were cultivated, then when, because they're benign, yeah. then when something yeah. not so benign erupts, then there's already a network that says, we go out on mule to deliver. Exactly. I love that idea. And it actually pairs with something that I wanted to say about, you know, what do you do in advance? Um, twinning strategy. That's referred to as a twinning strategy. And we need more of that. It's not great to swoop in in an outbreak for the first time. But there are, we've got reasons to be there prior to. So let's talk about measles. You know, measles is a dwarfing the Ebola cases in the DRC. We should be building measles <laughs> clinics, you know, in everyday health. So then you have something pre-existing that you slide into when there is an outbreak. Build in that infrastructure or library books. You know, figure out what's important to that community and what creates the supply chain and the personnel and the training that you need to have in place. A reason to be there every day. Um, so it's not just a one-off thing. You don't want a one-size-fits-one response. Great. Well, Kendall, it's yeah. been a delight to have you, you with us today. Thank you. Thank you.